there's so many jokes that we could start off with. This honestly. Oh, do you do you have jokes? I have we... jokes. Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. Because we can like do a joke compatible joke. Oh, we, could we? We could do. <laughs> um, ugh, there's nothing about Blade I want to joke about. <laughs> Um, Tax evasion. <laughs> right. Wesley. <laughs> Honestly, like, I want better for Wesley Snipes. Like, do you? I do want you... a Wong Fu sequel. Oh, well, yeah. I, I mean, that'd be so hard. Pat- Patrick Swayze's dead, so. Ooh. Yeah. We so, can have Bernie style it. Yeah. <laughs> it just begins with Noxima and I can't remember John Leguizamo's character's name. Like, at. Chi Chi. yeah. Devane. No, <laughs> they, uh, at Patrick Swayze's funeral, like, sprinkling ashes <laughs> like, or whatever. She, she was too pure for this world. She's, she's wearing the big, like, magnolia. Yeah. <laughs> Crawford. Stalker Channing's there. <laughs> oh, my God. Black like, when are we doing a Stalker Channing episode, honestly? Uh, anytime <laughs> you want. So, this is actually our intro. Hey, guys. Uh, hi, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the Mixed Reviews. I'm really mad that we didn't get to make a joke about being drift compatible. <sighs> Just assume, everyone, I made a really hilarious joke about being drift compatible. Okay. Just go with me, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I'm Gavin. Hi, I'm Louie, and I'm drift compatible with myself. <laughs> Was that hilarious? <laughs> I enjoy. I enjoy that. Okay, good. Uh, this is Some, the mixed reviews, guys. Someday, kids, you too can be drift compatible with yourself. Because mm-hmm. if you can't be drift compatible with yourself, how the hell are you going to be drift compatible with somebody else? Yes, yes. <laughs> See, this is who we are. I feel like that like really explains me well. <laughs> Uh, yes, so Mixed Reviews is a podcast in which we talk about something in the film world, be yeah. it a genre, be it a subject, be it a director, an actor, and this week... We're talking about... You, you say it. Guillermo del Toro. Yay! Did, did I say it correctly? I've, I'm always nervous, like, my pronunciation I, is shit. I kind of I can't you. Pr- I can't pronounce things in English, okay. so, like, Spanish? I wanted you to do it just so I could judge you. Okay. But you did pretty good. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I've met him. Ding. You'll hear that about ten more times throughout oh the episode. <laughs> what you guys didn't hear was me like rolling my eyes back into my fucking head. No, I think everybody heard that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I told my mom we were doing Guillermo del Toro today, and she was like, um, "Was he in that Johnny Depp movie?" <laughs> and I was like, "He's a director, mom." And she's like, "No, no, no. He was like, he always plays bad guys." And I was like, "I think you're thinking of Javier Bardem." <laughs> That's that's at least better because most time when I tell people we're doing Aaron Toro, the response is like, "Oh, remember when he dated Scarlett Johansson?" And I was like, "That's Benicio." <laughs> like, I was like, "Wait, no, who? Like, come on, guys, get it together." Uh, before we talk a little bit more about Guillermo, we have some old business to get to. Old business. So last episode we talked about a superhero team movie. We did. Um, had a blast. Honestly, like I felt very underprepared, but honestly, I was preparing my whole life. I know that's that a, that's exactly how I felt. I was like, I'm gonna come in. People are gonna be like, this dude's an idiot. And I was like, oh wait, I've read comic books since I could read. So, <laughs> uh, so we asked you to vote on what your favorite um, superhero movie was, and this is the first time we've had a poll where no one voted for other. No, we did yeah. not. We did not get any other um, beyond what we had on our poll. So. Um, X2, X-Men United, which was your pick, uh, got 21%. The Avengers got 26%. And Captain America Civil War, which is my pick, got 53%. And honestly, like, I I love X2 so much, so yeah. like, I'm not even going to shun you for that. Um, because you guys are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I also sent out a little happy fun uh, secondary poll um, asking you guys what you thought was the worst Fantastic Four movie um, ever made. And... 
close calls. So Fantastic Four, the 1994 version, got 0% of the vote. So that's everyone's favorite Fantastic Four, which is chilling. <laughs> chilling. Um, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, uh, got 20%. Fantastic Four, uh, the 2005 version, got 33%. And Fantastic Four, the 2015 version, came out on top with 47%. Yeah, so the, the worst. People fucking hate good old what's-his-face. <laughs> what's-his-face? Yeah, that's, uh... No, you got it right. Well, uh, I believe that's, uh... I, I think that's, like, a Eastern European last name. Right, 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 right. Um, but, uh, I real quick, I do want to read one of the responses we got to that poll, okay. which I love. This is from, um, at Several Bad Puns, who also goes by Lock Jess Monster. Love that. Lock Jess Monster, great. Um, she says, uh, 2005 made me believe I didn't like Chris Evans... Because it was the first thing I saw him in. Right, correct. And, and I'm so glad your opinion has probably changed since then. Yeah. Also, we did get a note from Keith Walker, uh, who's one of our listeners, uh, who didn't vote in our poll uh, because he was angry. Well, no, he didn't. He missed our poll. But he's also angry that we didn't talk on, uh, much about supervillain stylings of list vampires or destroy all monsters. So maybe we'll do a supervillain episode. You never know. We could be ramping up to that. We have no plans. Are we gonna, <laughs> super villain episode, though, are we going to have to talk about Suicide Squad? <laughs> no! I refuse! But anyways, we should probably move into our rewind and let you know a little bit about Yermal Del Toro. There you go. I feel like I'm overpronouncing that, like I'm in that SNL sketch with Jimmy Smith. Yeah, yeah. That's for one person in our audience, by the yeah. way, and she knows who she is. <laughs> Super fan of SNL. Super Jimmy Smith fan. Um, so when I first told, uh, I told my friend Kim we were doing Guillermo del Toro. Um, well, first of all, I broke it to her that we weren't doing a Christmas episode. And her she res- took it hard. Yeah, her response was a gif of RuPaul saying bullshit. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then I was like, we're doing Guillermo del Toro, and she's like, that's basically another Halloween episode. So <laughs> I mean, she's not wrong. She's not wrong, but. You know, he's got a movie out. He has a movie out. And you know what? His movies are magical. Right. It's so true. Tis the season. <laughs> also, he kind of looks like Santa. And also, does the fawn not come and visit you guys for Christmas every night? Just right, right. <laughs> <laughs> the fawn comes for me, like, on Hanukkah. You know? He lights the candle. It's eight nights of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> ah, here again. <laughs> uh, I forgot to bake cookies this time. Uh... <laughs> So let's yes, let's talk a little bit about Guillermo del Toro. Uh, he was born in October 9th, nineteen sixty four. Uh, he's a Mexican film director, screenwriter, producer, uh, Bon Vivant, Man About Town, a Bon uh, Vivant, yeah, exactly, a Renaissance man. Um, everybody ha- at this point has seen one of his films, but his uh, first film was Kronos. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a Mexican film, and it's very easy to find. It's on Criterion, and I highly recommend going to that. Let's. Sorry, I shouldn't have skipped ahead to his filmmaking uh, because his childhood is adorable. <laughs> he was raised a strict Catholic, but uh, he began making films on Super Eight with his father's camera. Um, he would do stop motion pieces, sometimes with Planet Apes toys, and one of his short films. And I love the fact that people know this was about a uh, killer potato uh, with world domination ambitions. Uh, Same. It murdered Del Toro's mother and brothers before stepping outside and being crushed by a car. (laughs) As as a potato wants to do. Yeah, it's a potato. (laughs) Doesn't seem like it's hard to destroy. The potato murdered the brother and mother, but got stopped by a car. You know, potatoes are tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a whole famine 
Right, true. Ask the Irish about potatoes. They don't trust them. Neither do my hips. <laughs> Carbs. Um, uh, before he moved on to make Chronos, he made ten short films, only two of which have ever seen the, the light of day, uh, outside of whoever you know he made them for. And that's uh, Donna Lupe and Geometria. I'm sure I'm saying that really wrong. Donna Lupe Ge- sounds right. No, the Geometria? other one. I don't yeah, know. yeah. That's Who a, knows? I'm a bad Mexican. Um, he also wrote uh, four and directed five episodes of the cult series La Hora Marcada, along with other Mexican filmmakers such as uh, Manuel Luz Becky and Alfonso Cuaron. Um, he studied special effects and makeup with special effects artist Dick Smith. Um, he spent ten years as a makeup special effects designer and formed his own company, uh, Necropia. I'm also probably saying Necropia. That. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, he also co-founded the Guadalajara International Film Festival. Later in his directing career, he formed his own production company, The Tequila Gang. So cool. That is so cool. Um, in 97, at the age of 33, which is my age right now, if you want to know how I'm glowing up, um, <laughs> he was given $30 million to make the film Mimic, which was his big first big budget Hollywood film, by Miramax. Uh he has, especially with all the Weinstein stuff, been talking about it because he's been doing rounds for Shape of Water, and um, he definitely mentioned that it was not a fun experience. Awful, yeah, man. they they question every single thing he did. They told him they they only like two rules they gave him up front was that he couldn't kill any uh, animals or, or ch- dogs, yeah, yeah children or dogs. So he literally did that. Yeah, he did that in the movie just to piss them off. Um, and uh, I believe I read in an interview recently he referred to it as uh, they were like the Borgias of independent film. <laughs> and uh, he was not willing to sit down with um, Lucretia, who was the matriarch of the Borgia family. This is a, <laughs> this is a very... High brow. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, and this is a bit crazy, uh, his father was kidnapped. Uh, he's an auto. Uh, he's an automotive entrepreneur. Uh, he was kidnapped in Guadalajara. Uh, the family had to pay twice the ransom it was asked for. I'm assuming because they he got so much money for making the film. Um, and that move that like prompted him to move his family yeah. and him outside of Mexico. He it, said something like he had self exiled himself from his yeah, homeland, right? Like, in a time interview, he said every day, every week, something happens that reminds me I am an involuntary exile from my country. Yeah. Um, I can only imagine like how like fucked up you must be to like. That 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 would change you, right? Like yeah. you, you, your your father, and he was kidnapped for seventy days or something yeah. crazy like that. It yeah. was it was not like over a weekend got dad back. <laughs> it was like that's like what two and a half months. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. It's so crazy. Uh, he's done a wide variety of film, comic book adaptations, Blade Two, Hellboy, uh, historical fam- fantasy and horror films. You have The Devil's Backbone uh, and Pan's Labyrinth, which are both set on different sides of the Spanish Civil War. Um, I don't mean, I just mean time-wise, not like, you know, there's like the post-Spanish Civil War. There was the good guys and the yeah, bad guys. exactly. <laughs> um, but, uh... Did he do Mimic after Kronos? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Mimic, yeah. And then he did, he did uh, Devil's Backbone and then Blade, I believe. So... Yeah, Devil, yep, yeah. So, like, Kronos was like a hit, essentially. Yes. And Miramax was like, alright, let's make you a Hollywood movie. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> I mean, no, like, he made one movie in Mexico for, like, yeah. nothing, and it got, like, because didn't he say, like, no one wanted to make this movie? Yeah. And he had to, like, basically go into massive debt um, to get Kronos made, and it was, I believe, Mexico's, like, submission for the best foreign language uh, to the Academy Awards, um, and then, like, Hollywood's like, sure, let's make a, essentially, it's a monster movie. Yeah. Um, 
And it's it's funny too because he's sort of gotten to do all of the monster. Oh, I mean, I'm sure he has more. But, like, the monsters that, like, really inspired him as a kid. He was a kid who was obsessed with, like, the creature yeah. from the Black Lagoon. You have the Shape of Water, which has yeah. a fish man. Uh, Hellboy also has a fish man. Admittedly, that was a property that existed prior to that. But, like, I'm sure that was very attractive yeah. to him. Um, he said that he, he loves Frankenstein. He loves Frankenstein. For me, when I was in my teens, I saw, uh, I saw James Wales Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And I saw them... Very different than when I was a, a child, because as a child, you you catch this, you catch that. But as a teenager, I thought, this is this is me, a creature that is not in the world. And then obviously I read uh, the novel, and it was, it remains in my life one of those books that changed my life. You know, I read it, and I felt there was such poetry, and to know that it was written by a girl in her teens, you know, that it was really such a a beautiful poem to an outsider you know an outsider creature and uh i i really it's strange because fairy tales and monsters and horror in my in my mind they go hand in hand i cannot really and i don't think there is really a line it's it's a continuum i think as a my theory is that they emerge from there horror tales emerged from the folk tales. And I totally get that. Like, I love both the original two Frankenstein films, uh, as well as, like, Mimic is, you know, and he mentioned in an interview, I actually read with him when he made the director's cut in, um, I think it was 2013, they yeah, wanted to make the yeah. director's cut of Mimic, and he mentioned Them, which is a film about giant ants from the 1950s. Um, giant irradiated ants. And he also mentioned Quatermass in the Pit. Second time Quatermass in the Pit has been mentioned on this podcast for all you film nerds. Mass. Um, I think it's it's funny because he, he talks a lot about how like the Universal Monsters really inspired him as a kid. Yeah. And he just like saw them like they were the monsters were beautiful to him. Yeah. He really like I think also he's like a chubby guy not like conventionally attractive and I think he kind of really uh, identified with like the beauty of like these outside oh, yeah. characters. Well that's I I yeah, not to dig too deep into his psychology, but for the perceived thing. And I feel like it, in a way it's sort of like what I was talking about. I grew up, comic books, I liked the weirder characters. And we talked about last week, Nightcrawler's still like one of my favorite X-Men. And one of the things that always drew me to him was that like he's always told how ugly he is and right. whatnot. And yet he's still this adventurer and everything. And I think that's becomes really that sort of outsiderness, attractive to, yeah. you know. Well, <clears throat> there's a sense of... Uh fragility and loss with monsters for me there is a sense of um uh acceptance you know they 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 are not figures not they are not aspirational figures they are sort of uh, martyr like figures they 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 represent uh, suffering and and a sense of being an outcast and, and you know that I can identify with since I was a very young kid because I I, I was the quiet kid that, that looked but didn't participate, you know. Yeah. I was incredibly thin. Mm -hmm. I was uh, Rutger Hauer blonde mm -hmm. and I, I was incredibly quiet. And, and, and uh, you know, that didn't sit well with all the other uh, kids. So I, you know, it was not an easy childhood but, but eventually... You know, I found companionship with these creatures. I did. And I found them to be very moving. And I, Lon Chaney, for example, is I, I had a very abnormal childhood because 
I was reading um, English fluently at age six. I was completely bilingual, and I I, I read and, and um, uh, bought books, anthologies, magazines that were in English, and, and, and I came in contact with famous monsters of film, and, and therefore I came in contact with Lon Chaney, Jack Pierce, uh, all the great makeup guys, Rick Baker. Mm -hmm. It was a different world, and I felt accepted in there. Because even when talking about The Shape of Water, you know, he's mentioned before that, like, when he watched Creature from Black Lagoon, he always wondered why they weren't together, yeah. the creature and the I think woman. he says he thought that they were both so beautiful. Yeah. And I feel like an asshole because that was my least favorite Universal movie. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, we didn't know you were doing this next. Um, <laughs> didn't know. And I think the one that, when I was a, a young, young kid, the one that blew my mind was Creature from the Black Lagoon. That moment when he's swimming under Julie Adams. And I just thought, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And the creature is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And Julie Adams. So go figure what Freudian misconnections happened there. But I go there. And What's really interesting, too, about uh, both Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone is they share a lot in common with this um, 1970s Spanish film called The Spirit of the Beehive, which I actually just saw for the first time a couple years ago um, on the big screen in a 35mm print. And if you've not seen Spirit of the Beehive, I highly recommend it. And I know that sounds that name doesn't sound like that's not going to grab you, but it's about a young girl who's obsessed with Frankenstein's monster. Oh, cool. And it's so good and so well done and, like, very touching. And, yeah, uh, I recommend that. Um, Del Toro views the horror genre as inherently political, explaining, much like fairy tales, there are two facets of horror. One is pro-institution, which is the most reprehensible type of fairy tale. Don't wander in the woods and always obey your parents. The other type of fairy tale is completely anarchic and anti-establishment. Um, he's close friends with two other prominent, critically praised Mexican filmmakers, Alfonso Cuaron and Inaratu. Um, yeah. The three are often influences each other's directorial decisions and have been interviewed together by Charlie Rose. That scumbag. Cuaron <laughs> <laughs> um, was one of the producers of Pan's Labyrinth, while Inaratu assisted in the editing of the film. And I love the fact that they have maintained that really close oh, yeah. personal relationship. Um, besides directing, uh, Del Toro is also a very prolific producer. Um, he has produced, and here's just a short list of films, um, The Orphanage, Julia's Eyes, Beautiful, Puss in Boots, Kung Fu Panda, Mama. Um, and he was originally set to direct uh, the, the Hobbit films, and I'm happy that he didn't, um, just because I don't like them. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, Maybe you would have liked him if he directed them. Yeah, maybe I would have. And actually, like that, that was a very precarious position, because like he wanted to do it. Like, unofficial story, he wanted to do it one way. Peter Jackson wasn't necessarily really happy with the way he wanted to do it. He wanted to be more like a Guillermo del Toro film. I get that. Right. As one is wont to do when you own a property. Um, and, like, he left very far into development. And Peter Jackson came in and decided to scrap everything. So, unlike the Lord of the Rings films where you had three years of pre-production out of time to, to build things, design things, and plan things, um, you had nine months right. to plan three films. And, uh, yeah. And the Hobbit so, just feels like a rehash of yeah, yeah. Lord of the Rings. And that's the, why I wish he had directed him because I feel like they wouldn't yeah. be, feel like a rehash. Um, but, uh, he's also co-written, uh, the strain novels with Chuck Hogan. Um, he turned that into a TV show. My favorite story about the, the strain is, uh, he pitched it as a TV show. No one wanted it. Turned it into a book. 
People wanted it. Right. Um, he's like, take that. <laughs> uh, in uh, 2010, he launched Miranda Studios, was longtime cinematographer, uh, Guillermo del... Uh, Guillermo del Toro, Guillermo Navarro, uh, director Matthew Cullen, and executive producer Javier Jimenez, uh, Mirida. Did I say it wrong the first time? Maybe I did. Uh, Mirida was formed in Los Angeles, California, to be a collaborative space where they and other filmmakers can work with Mirida's artists to create and produce projects that span digital productions and content for film, television, advertising, interactive, and other media. Mirida launched a sister company to production company motion theory he then went on to direct uh pacific rim in tw- 2013 uh it's he referred to it as his most unmodest film this has everything the scale is enormous and i'm just a big kid having fun um he directed the pilot of the strain as i mentioned before and then after the strains pilot episode del toro directed crimson peak gothic horror filming co-wrote matthew robbins and lucinda cox del toro had described the film as a very set oriented classical but at the same time modern take on a ghost story he was selected to be on the jury for the main competition section 2015 con film festival um and yeah and that brings us up to now uh where he has the shape of water which just came out um which he was able to make for a lot cheaper than um um, what was expected of what would be expected of a movie like that, but he was able to shoot it in Toronto where they shoot the strain and he used the sets. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, so he kept the budget real low and therefore was able to put it into other things, you know, monster yeah. makeup and, and whatnot. And, uh, I don't know, it was a really su- successful plan. Um, he's been attached to and not gotten off the ground many other projects but once again i mentioned he's incredibly busy yeah as a as both a producer and a uh director um but yeah so many of the projects that he's had that have have gone un, gone unfilmed uh the like hp lovecraft yeah, yeah the hp lovecraft adaptation of at the mountains of madness um dc's uh justice league dark justice league dark and uh i feel like there's something else i'm leaving out but it'll probably come to me um i want to mention like i read that he um, you know what? what I'm gonna, you know what I'm gonna do? <laughs> um, there is an article that uh, Entertainment Weekly has out right now. The Devil's Backbone, which is the second of his uh, Spanish films. There's a book that just came out, and it's like interviewing Guillermo, um, talking about like the making of it, whatever. And he wrote um, a foreword, and he talks about um how after Chronos and um. He was in a limbo. And so this is just like a little bit of what he had said. In the early 1990s, after doing Kronos, I found myself in a bit of a limbo. It was a limbo I am now quite familiar with. I don't belong in any safe film category. Too weird for full-on summer fair. Too in love with pop culture for the art house world. And too esoteric for hardcore fandom. The fact is, every premise I'm attracted to has an inherent risk of failure. I often find myself wondering why I cannot choose an easier path. But I guess I cannot. It's in my nature. I am one with my vices, and I believe that, well regarded, our vices render our virtues. Um, and so he tried making The Devil's Backbone um, set in the Mexican Revolution, and the authorities in Mexico deemed it was too uh, like distasteful, and they would not give any funding. Um, so after Chronos debuted at Cannes, um, he felt like the movie was never going to get made, and he was like his career was basically at a halt. Um, and literally, other Mexican filmmaker Pedro Almodovar saved him. Says, um, how did he do it? Where did it happen? He met him at the Miami Film Festival, and Pedro saw Kronos and said, "What are you doing next? I want to produce it." 
And that he went to, uh, they were filming it, and this was after uh, Mimic, who had a really awful time, and he didn't have a lot of control over the movie and how it was being made. And um, he told Pedro, like, okay, yeah, but I'm going to have Final Cut. And Pedro was like, what does that even mean? And he was like, oh, Final Cut's like, you know, I get to decide how the movie's, you know, made, or like, you know, the, the edit at the end. And Pedro was like, yinadur, like, yeah, that's... Because you're the director, of course. What, don't be crazy. Let's fucking make this movie. Um, and he has said that because of that experience, he produces so many um, first timers because he feels like this. He needs to pay it forward. That people give gave him a chance and opportunity. And so I love the fact that he not only is giving an opportunity and chance to all these other filmmakers, but he seems like really, really interested in highlighting also uh, Mexican artists yeah. and people uh, and and uh, you know really giving a chance to people in the industry where they probably would not have otherwise. Um, and so that's kind of like his, all the, the, the projects he puts himself into. Um, he's really like looking out for people who, um, have maybe would not have had a chance or have like a space. Cause he clearly understands like, Oh, he's not making popcorn movie or he's, right. it's not weird enough or whatever. And so I, I just love that. I think he's like very generous with his like art. Can I, can I, be a braggart for a moment can i tell the story and then then i will mention it again don't don't make me sing don't make me sing um so uh picture this picture this mountains lake placid 2002 okay i'm there okay um my graduation gift from my graduate high school was a ticket to the lake placid film festival i went for all five days and uh, I was the youngest person there, and I was staying on my own for the first time ever in wow. a, like, a weird cabin hotel room. You're, like, 18? Yeah. And, um... That's so legal. I know. <laughs> and, uh, so my first day there, um, I was like, I'm, I want to go to panels. And they were having pan uh, this one panel that was called Comic Books to Film. Um, and this was right after Spider-Man. So it's not like there was a ton of comic book movies. Right. You have to understand. And so I'm walking down the street... And uh, this gentleman with an accent approaches me, and he's like, hey, do you know where this comic books to film panel is? And I was like, no, I'm headed there myself, though, so maybe I can help you find the way. And uh, this gentleman was with three other gentlemen as well, and uh, we run into another guy, and he's like, yeah, I can show you guys. And, and so I was, like, hanging back, and I was walking with this other guy, and he's like, isn't this surreal? And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he's like, we're walking with Yermel Del Toro. Ray Harryhausen, Mike Mignola, the creator of Hellboy, and David S. Goyer, who at that time had written, um, had just written, Bla well, he'd written Blade, and like, essentially, and he was writing for DC Comics, and I was like, <laughs> you wet like, your pants. Yeah. And so I went to the panel, and I got, uh, Guillermo to sign something for me, and then the next day I showed up at his next panel, which was about, uh, it was Ray, a Ray Harryhausen panel, and there was maybe ten people there, and slowly over the course of the five days, um, I was the youngest person there, uh, so I just kept running into Aramal del Toro, and he knew my name by the end, like, he kept being, hey, Gavin, and I was the weirdest fucking thing in the world, oh, but shit. what, the, the other thing, the reason I'm bringing this up, other than bragging points and dropping names, is, um, throughout the entire film festival, he hadn't even made Hellboy yet, uh, Mike Mignola was there just because he, they had just signed the deal to make Hellboy, he'd only made Blade 2. Yeah, he was there for Blade 2. For Blade 2, and, um... <laughs> And he has was, throughout those five days, the most generous, quote-unquote, famous person I have ever met in my entire life. He would talk to anybody. He was cool about everything. And, like, he just was 
so genuinely happy to be there. And as you mentioned, willing to, to help out, uh, he gave his email address out to everybody at every panel. Wow. And he, and his big thing is he kept saying, he's like, if you say you're a filmmaker, you're a filmmaker. He's like, it doesn't matter to me if you haven't sat down, you know, at an edit bay or you haven't picked up a camera. If you believe you're a filmmaker, you're a filmmaker because yeah. no one does anything without believing in themselves first. And, um, I was too, like, nervous and scared to, like, ever email him because, uh, but, uh, but here's his email, guys. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm sure it's different now. I'm sure he's like Beyonce and changes it every week. But, uh, <laughs> but like, I don't know. I just think he's one of the coolest, most genuine people I've ever met. And, like, yeah, such a, such an amazing speaker and, like, so down to earth. Uh, there's more we can mention about his childhood and his upbringing, but, like, I don't know. I think it's, it's cool to talk about him now and, like, He's just always seemed that way. And, yeah. like, he's a person who really knows what he wants, but he also, like, really is into helping out others. And I don't know. Yeah. I, he is the, he's probably the person we've done so far, besides maybe Whoopi, that has the <laughs> biggest heart. Yeah. And so, like, I'm really excited to his, talk about him. All his interviews, I'm just, like, so taken by how passionate he is. Yeah. And how, like, how he gives no fucks. Yeah. He's like, people wanted me to, like, take out violence from Pan's Labyrinth. Fuck them. <laughs> I do what I want. And, yeah. Like, I love that him and, like, these two other really badass Mexican filmmakers are just, like, storming the gates of Hollywood. Yeah. And, like, making movies that are making money and, like, critically acclaimed, snatching Oscars left and right, and just, like, shitting on, like, all these, you know, uh, definitions of what a Hollywood movie should be. Yeah. Um, and he's just, like, I think especially after that mimic, he's just kind of been like, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. I'm not yeah. going to, like you know, pussyfoot around, like, oh, I don't know. No, he, he's, like, for Pacific Rim, he was, like, um, I'm gonna, like, do whatever I want, and no one's gonna help me differently, so right. sorry about it, but I'm not sorry. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, I just, like, I love that. And all of his interviews are so, like, weirdly moving. He's so yeah. well-spoken, and he, uh, it just seems like he's himself, his movies are magical, but he also seems like this, like, creature, um, that has been touched by like this other dimension and like has this wisdom from I don't know where. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. He also talks a lot about as a kid, he like, this is a great interview. He talks about people ask him, you know, how are you like so into like fables and fairy tales and monsters? And he says that when he was a kid, he like saw monsters. Yeah. And he like made a he, deal with monsters so he can get to the restroom without being eaten by them. Yeah, he like those are some of the stories he actually told all the way back then and like yeah. I I can't remember any of them verbatim but like the, yeah, when he was introducing the most passionate I saw him be was when he was introducing Ray Harryhausen because Ray Harryhausen, a famous claymation uh, director did like all the monsters for Clash of the Titans, the original, and gotcha. like um, Jason the Argonauts and all the stop motion skeletons and everything. And like he was clearly such a huge influence on him. And I, I don't know, like he, yeah, I, I love that bit about him. I love that he, yeah, he just he truly is like touched by this otherworldliness and he sees beauty in the grotesque. Yeah. And he thinks perfection is actually like deceitful. That's why all of his like villains are very sexy and. He, um, it's, and he, and he said, he's like, if things that are perfect are not human. I found being raised Catholic, uh, I felt such unforgiving, uh, there was no leeway. My grandmother explained to me that you were born with original sin. So you, you already owned a, owed a check that you had never cashed. Mm -hmm. And she said, you're going to go to purgatory. 
and you're going to spend time in purgatory, which is not quite as bad as hell, but it's very similar. Yeah, I go, but I haven't done anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you feel uh, this, there's this Kafkian sense of guilt, you know. And then on top of that, if you think about modern times, we are in a, in a, in a paradox where we have uh, super sophisticated social language that makes it almost impossible to, to be imperfect because then you are pillared publicly. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we are living in an environment where socially we see things that we thought were past uh, sexual uh, hang-ups, uh, race, racism, classism, brutal divisions through fear and hatred that you thought were dormant or gone for 50 years are coming back. So there's a, there's a paradox at play. And the only place that I think, I think that the only place I, can, I find refuge and solace and forgiveness is in monsters. Because the monster in itself is an act that is not asking for forgiveness mm -hmm. and it's not acting for but is there for you to accept we are far we're, we're much further from angels than we are from monsters and if you think about it the goal of perfection none of us can attain the goal of imperfection we are all great at it already yeah. in our own style and i think uh there is a very significant moment in 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 freaks in todd browning's freaks which is uh the good guys are the freaks and the quote-unquote bad guys are the normal people, again, quote-unquote. And, and there's a moment in which the freaks chant, we accept you, one of us, one of us. There is, there is that instant pardon of your deficiencies mm. with monsters, whereas the intolerance of people that believe there is only one way of behaving, one way, one, one skin color, one single credo, you know, people that are, that are absolutely certain scare me the most the imperfections are what makes us human and that's what's interesting and i just like think he's so fucking cool for it yeah um so should we get into our picks absolutely so uh i love him so much that i want to spend very little time breaking my heart talking about the things that uh right that i don't love so why don't we start with our one star reviews let's do it Is there any discussion that his worst movie is not Mimic? Yeah, no, I, I think yeah, I don't think there is. Right. Yeah, I mean it's one hundred percent Mimic, and I'm so happy you said that because I was nervous you were gonna pick something else. <laughs> what if I was like Pan's Labyrinth? Yeah, isn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> and and the thing that sucks about talking about Mimic is he's clearly addressed those problems yeah. because they weren't his problems. He, I mean, he talks about. I mean, so. We have been talking a little bit, and I don't know why I'm going here at this moment, but the so Mimic, for all of you that don't know, is 1987, the first um, big-budget Hollywood movie that Guillermo... I'm saying his name weirder now, because yeah. you said Guillermo. I'm um, sorry my whiteness is catching. It's, like, really affecting me. I, you, do you, you need to do you want some? Do you want to drink some tea now? Absolutely. Is it time for tea? <laughs> um, so Mimic is about... Uh, there is a disease that is affecting uh, the children of New York City, and it's being uh, spread by cockroaches. Yeah, yeah. And so Mira Sorvino and her, like, hot doctor husband decide to create the Judas Bug. Yeah, yeah. And the Judas Bug is, like, sp a splice of, like, a mantis and of something else, and it's essentially going to kill off all these roaches... And the thing is that these Judas bugs have a short lifespan and they'll die out too. And so everything will be fine. Yeah. Um, and there's a little bit of like hesitation, like, oh, I don't know what we're putting out there. Like we, we can't test it, but they're like the children, we need to save the children. And then, oh, lo and behold, three years later, the Judas bugs have like, you know, um, 
evolved, evolved yeah they and turned into huge through generations as well which is an important distinction because like not years generations yeah like, yeah they, they they are now like human-sized big old motherfuckers right and they are like preparing to go after their next predators which is humans and so uh antics ensue and mira sorvino and her hot husband have to like figure out how to like stop the brood from like eating. He's so bad in it though. Jeremy Northam is that his name? I don't know. Yeah, I was just like he's cute. I read in an interview somewhere that um, Del Toro originally attempted to cast Andre Brower in that role, and I love Andre Brower. Right. And, his, and the studio told him that the American public wasn't ready for an interracial couple. Yeah, yeah. that and then also um, Josh Brolin's character. They're supposed to be gay. Supposed yeah. to be gay, and which they, admittedly, like watching the movie, I'm like, where for? would they have fit that yeah. in? Like, was he just gonna be like? Yeah, like, Ew, bugs. Yeah, like, we can make those jokes because we're queer as fuck. Yeah, exactly. Um, we have our cards. Yeah. Um, but so I did want to mention, and this might be fucking weird, and you can edit this out if you want to. But so I, I saw, I, I had not seen Mira Sorvino. Yeah. In a while, and I, she was one of those actresses. I'm bringing this up also because Selma Blair is in Hellboy, and she is also one of those actresses that, to me, was like, where did she go? What happened to her in her career? Mira Sobino has a fucking Oscar. Yeah. Um, Mighty Aphrodite. Right. And so we've talked a little bit, but not really directly addressed all the, like, crazy sexual assault that's happening in Hollywood. And I so I watched this movie, and then I, like, my, I got a notification from, like, the Hollywood Reporter being, like, Mira Sorvino's talking out against Harvey Weinstein, and it just made me like think fuck both of these women have had pretty successful Hollywood careers yeah not like you know A-lister stuff at all but I mean Mira has the Oscar that's pretty fucking A-lister shit yeah but she did that with Harvey Weinstein and she talks about how he was the worst and how she was only a little bit protected because she was dating Quentin Tarantino who was also part of the Miramax crew right um and she said as soon as they broke up it was over you know she could not find work at all Summer Blair, the things that she has said that has happened to her are fucking horrifying to me and disgusting. Yeah. And so I just wanted to put out in the universe that I know we're kind of like joking about like how some of these guys are fucking assholes, but trust and believe, like I am truly horrified. And it makes me really, really sad because not that I think like Summer Blair is a great actress. No, but I like, like Summer Blair. I've yeah. always liked Summer Yeah, and Blair. she just definitely deserves better. Yeah. And I I don't I can't remember anything that she's I mean, Hellboy 2 was maybe like the last her time last I saw yeah. her in a movie, which is fucked up. Yeah. Um, and even more, I mean, not even more, but like when you think about Mira Sorvino and sh- the work that she was doing, she's been like nominated for Golden Globes and all this shit. And I, it just, it really hit me like, oh man, whenever I'm thinking, what happened to that actress? It's probably because some fucking guy yeah. was a piece of shit. That's awful. Yeah. I'm not cutting that out. I think that's important. Anyway, um, mimic. Um, essentially Harvey Weinstein and his army of assholes um, were forcing him like they, they essentially hired him to make a cool creepy horror movie and then were like mm, just make like Alien again and right so. right and it's uh, just like a very pain by the numbers and it's you can just like almost and, feel and it's funny because you can tell like um as I mentioned earlier, in 2013, he had a chance to re-edit the film. He was able to go back into the 
to the archives and find didn't stuff. Didn't he say that he, like, took out whole shots that he didn't shoot or something? Yeah, so he took out, like, 90 to 95% of the second unit direction. And apparently, like, there was a ton of second unit direction they did without him. And it's a lot of it's, like, jump scares. And also, on the, uh, like, on the DL, but, like, seems to be public knowledge, he mentioned that some of the second unit direction was Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. And, like, he, like, specifically went after some of that stuff. Yeah. I, it, y- yes. And, like, that they came with designs for what the monsters yeah. should look like. And they were like, give them teeth. And he's like, yeah. he's like they're, they're insects. They don't <laughs> have teeth. I remember reading that, yeah. And they're like, uh, they wanted him to look more human or whatever. And he's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, they are bugs. It, they're like, make it hairy. And yeah. he's like, bugs don't have hair. Like, yeah. It was just, like, crazy, crazy. And... So it was like the vision was completely watered down. Yeah. Even the opening of this movie looks ex- it's like a B version of of Seven. Seven, yeah. Because that was like what was hot and was in. And and like you can tell like there's there's like plot points that are that are rushed to try and put in place to like to so you'll focus more on um you know what's happening and then because of that there's character moments that get sort of pushed aside. There's one moment I really love in the movie, which has nothing to do with anything because of the way those character moments have been put aside. And that's, um, there's a part where Mara Sorvino takes a pregnancy test Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's negative after they're clearly trying to have a baby. That scene feels like it comes out of nowhere because the movie feels just like a jumble of stuff until you get to, to, to like monsters. Um, but the way she plays that, like she, she delivers this line. Just try again. Try again. You know, sometimes these things can be wrong. It's okay, I go, okay? Bye, dear. And you can tell, like, there's so much behind that I have to go. Yeah. And, like, I don't know. That's a mark of, like, a really talented performance, but also a really good director. Yeah. Like, he was able to direct this, like, repressed emotion in her. It feels like it sucks because there are a lot of, like, his touches in here. I mean, there is the... There's a priest character. Right. And there's a lot of religious things going on. Like, they're... uh, Well, that's... I mean, they're the Judas bugs. It's, like, he, he said one of his concepts was that it was, like... It had God. What, God had forsaken humans. And, right. And, what if we were no longer God's favorite creature? Right. And it was these new <laughs> bugs. Yeah. Um, and he says about how. Also, there was he wanted to do this like really insane scene. How there's there's one um, is it fertile man? Like there's yeah. one male bug that is going to inseminate all these like female bugs. And he wanted to have a scene of like this bug fucking a bunch of of female insects. And they were like, absolutely not. Exactly. Um, and and he, he there's also like. There's a kid who, like, is on the spectrum, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny shoes. Funny shoes, yeah. Funny shoe man. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't know who decided that he should be, like, the one to be, like, size 11, loafers, Clark, like, whatever. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, he survived because the guy's walking out from the... Yeah. There's a lot of weird things. But, that, but I mean, that's that's a very Del Toro thing, like, using using a child to be sort of... Because you even yeah. see that in Kronos. There's the, yeah. the mute child who gets one line in yeah. the film. That's another thing that he's really good at. And I know we're supposed to be talking about, like, the, the stuff that's not great. But he's so good at directing children. Mm-hmm. I've oh, mentioned many times on this podcast, so I do not really care for children actors. Hate kid actors. <laughs> yeah, and, um... <laughs> and... 
is really good at pulling yeah. pulling a performance from them that's really and I think part of it is he just makes them feel really comfortable yeah he doesn't also like I think he doesn't like talk down to them yeah because um, I think also he's just like a big kid people say yeah. he's a big kid uh, but yeah, Mimic is like unfortunate. It, fe- yeah. it feels like well, that's and not to spoil the end. But as you mentioned, like he survives that child thing. Like the only reason that child scene exists, and you could almost feel like they probably wanted to cut that out too, right. is so at the end they end up as uh, the the family the, the family with this child that's on the spectrum. Um, but uh, sidebar too, uh, the rest of that cast is really fucking great. You have. Um, uh, Charles S. Dutton, whom I love. Um, you have F. Murray Abraham, who's the priest, right? And then you have Giancarlo Giannini, who is an amazing actor. And it's funny because he wasn't who he wanted for that role. He actually wanted the star of um of uh Kronos. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. But his English wasn't good enough. Is it like Federico Lupi? Yeah, Lupa. I don't know. And his his English wasn't was unfortunately not. Uh, good enough, good to, like, enough to, to play pull uh, out the role. So, but I do love Giancarlo Giannini. So, like the one silver lining though of this movie, this is where he meets Doug Jones because Doug Jones plays a lot of the human, like in costume, yeah. big cockroach monster. And this is the beginning of their long relationship working in movies together. I think the only movie since then he hasn't been in is Pacific Rim. Yeah. Um. And so you know, silver linings. Um. So yeah, I I don't know how much there is to say about Mimic other than the other silver lining is that, you know, he realized that he would always be his own person at that point. Yeah. He would never be under the thumb. And there's been other movies I, I've heard he's compromised on. On the original Hellboy, Universal really pushed for the creation of the one BRPD agent who is, like, introduced right. to the... So the audience would have more of an, an entry point. An entry point. That's like the cute guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Turn the pages, please. If you don't mind. Please. The pages. These? You're reading these? Four books at once. Every day. As long as I'm there to turn the pages. My name's Broom. Professor Trevor Broom. Sir, I'm John. Agent John T. Myers, Kansas City, 76. T stands for Thaddeus, mother's older brother. Scar on your chin happened when you were 10. You still wonder if it's ever going to fade away. How did it be... Update. And who's kind of worthless, but yeah. like... I mean, he's written out of the second one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think that was, once again, him, his doing. Just being like, we don't need this guy anymore. Right. <laughs> um. So, like, I mean, there's been moments, but I I think that's where he really realized, like, he would be, like, an independent force. The buck right. would stop with him. And, uh, right. And yeah. so I, I think that's, you know, an important lesson. I think the Mimic is just an important lesson. And I'm glad he had the opportunity to go back... And he said he's happier with the director's cut, but you know he's he never got to film the ending he wanted, so right. like that's a huge thing. Yeah, um, I also have to say I didn't like Hellboy one that much. Hellboy two I thought was way more successful. In yeah, a lot eyes. of which is funny. I I agree. A lot of people feel it's the other way, and really? I and I one hundred percent think that is like. I think when you watch the two Hellboy movies, if you're watching Guillermo Toro as like really talented director or if you're watching Yermal del Toro as an artist because I think the mm-hmm. second one is so much him yeah there's more wait, it, it almost feels like that came out after that was what he did after Pans yeah and it just feels like he is in complete control of his powers knows yeah. what he wants and like it, it moves away from like the steampunk dark whatever yeah and it goes more into and fantasy then, and admittedly like the, the first movie is like 
more like solely based off the Seed of Destruction, which is the initial comic book art of arc of Hellboy that Mike Mignola created. But like, I don't know. I I really dig the second one as well. When can I have that which is mine? Can you save him? It is for you to decide that. It is all the same to me. My heart is filled with dust and sand. But you should know it is his destiny to bring about the destruction of the Earth. Not now. Not tomorrow. But soon And if we're talking about things we don't like, I am not the world's biggest fan of Pacific Rim. I know everybody else is. I don't love it. You're a fucking hater. Part of part of that is I think this the script's a little not. I mean, I I think if you're going strictly for fun, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I I think the script's not all there, and I think Charlie Hunnam is like I I can't I don't understand. I mentioned that in the Anne Hathaway episode when the, we're talking about Nicholas Nickleby. Oh um, yeah, 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 yeah. I just don't like Charlie Hunnam. Um. I think also would be I Blade Two. Oh, you leave Blade Two alone? Uh, absolutely not. Yeah, that movie is crazy. I disagree. I mean, it's crazy, but like, I mean, I disagree about Pacific Rim, but I let you have your moment. <laughs> but Blade Two, I I will say Guillermo del Toro loves him a, a prologue. Yes, loves a good prologue. Loves to tell you like he's gonna set you up a little story. Yeah, he like gather around, kids, because here's a story I'm gonna tell, and there's like. Often it'll be like minutes and minutes of minutes of like, so there's a fable and this is yeah. how it goes. And, and he does it in good movies and other, like in Blade 2, I was like, okay, side up, who the fuck is Blade and what happened? What's going on? Uh, Blade 2 is what made me realize also, Gedmo has a really crazy, like, there's a masculinity to his movies that are, it's like the most pure, innocent masculinity. Cause it's not about like, you know, uh, bitches, whatever. It's mostly just like, this is awesome! Right. And, like, childlike wonder masculinity. Um, I will say where Pacific Rim has a lot of those, like, bro moments where it's, like, light it up. Yeah. It works there for me, and it absolutely flops so hard for me in Blade 2. Maybe it's because of Wesley Snipes. I don't know. But it's so weird, like, uh, I saved it for late. Whatever he's doing with his <laughs> fucking, like, blades and shit. I was like, no, I don't, I can't. Well, like my daddy said right before he killed my mom... Want anything done right, you gotta do it yourself. He also says, Can you blush? I think Blade 2 is the most successful of the Blade movies, I'll be perfectly honest. Though, I don't think that um, it could exist without Blade 1. the director of Blade One is Steve Norrington, I think is the name. Um, what Steve Norrington did is he crafted this like very sexy vampire world that's like very sleek and mm-hmm. modern and very like bit, you know tall buildings, neon lights, and like. And Guillermo del Toro comes in and he brings it back to a very gothic place, but then also like introduces these weird fucked up things. And I kind of love that he 
wants to make vampires just not sexy. Like, yeah. it seems to be a thing with him. Dirty vampires. Yeah, and Kronos is a good example of, like, yeah. the weird alabaster skin, and, like, yeah. and then you have Blade 2, and then you have The Strain, which also has essentially the same type of vampires as right. Blade 2, yeah. where their mouth comes unhinged and everything. And I like that that he is more interested in this really horrific sort of vampire and yeah. so I don't know I, I I dig that but it just did you not did con- let me have my Pacific Rim moment yeah, it just so. did not connect with me and I Chronos uh, uh, and that vampire story is a, I mean clearly way different yeah um, but uh, Blade 2 is like it was the type of cheese that I didn't like <laughs> and I love me some cheese you do love some cheese um, but I think it's time that we move into our five star reviews I'm just going to get this out of the way because yeah. I need to. And I don't care that I'm basic, but Pacific Rim is my favorite movie. <laughs> you are so basic. Um, listen, I saw this in Los Angeles when I was visiting in 2013, um, a friend of mine. And the amount of awesome moments in this movie is just incredible. Like the amount of times where I had that like inner 12 year old boy feeling where I was like, this is fucking cool. Like, seeing things that you had never, like... I've seen the movie Robot Jocks, Louie. How dare you? (laughs) Um, So there's an article that I want to uh, briefly mention, um, and it is titled, Pacific Rim is literally the most awesome movie of the summer. Okay, cool. Um, (laughs) And I hard agree. Um, it was, is that the subtitle or is that just you? That, no, that is the actual title and it was written by Angela Watercutter um, for Wired. Pacific Rim has moments that feel downright hokey, but then again, so does Ghostbusters. The end was a battle with a giant haunted marshmallow, remember? So does Back to the Future, and they're all incredibly fun. Not too long ago, there was a time before prequels and the Marvel Cinematic Universe when most people went to see summer flicks hoping to be surprised by something they hadn't seen before. Not looking for a faithful rendering of something that they saw or they read or saw on TV as a kid. Pacific Rim may come with a marketing blitz and scores of teasers and promotion, but it is trying its damnedest to be that kind of movie. I love that sense of discovery, um, and this is from the uh, screenwriter who is not Guillermo. Yeah. Um, You're experiencing something for the first time and your parents aren't in on it. Previous generations aren't in on it. It has a chance to belong to you and your generation in a way that nothing has. If, If Pacific Rim is a fraction of that, I would be very proud. And also... Uh, the Metal Gear creator Hideo Kojima, he tweeted, Pacific Rim is the ultimate otaku film that all of us had always been waiting for. Who are you if you are Japanese and won't watch this? Calling you out, Japan, who are you if you won't watch this? And, and I will admit, he's he's also said, you know, he's talked about Godzilla being one of his favorite monsters growing up. And, like, this was his attempt yeah. doing a Godzilla movie. And I, yes, I'm aware that, like, it's not based on something, so it deserves some points for doing something Guillermo different. Says, Guillermo says, when you get a big budget, you can do two things. You can be crazy or lazy. I've chosen to be as crazy as I can. And I do appreciate that. And I'm like, fuck yes. Um, if you haven't seen, uh, this is, uh, Pacific Rim was in 2013, and essentially there are kaijus that are coming out of the earth, um, and they're just, like, big fucking monsters. They're coming out from uh, under the sea and attacking the Pacific Rim. <laughs> and uh, so the global nations all come together because the economy and, like, money and, you know, the environment is being fucked up because of these fucking monsters. They build these big mechas that they call Jaegers. And essentially, um, they fucking fight. <laughs> 
And, yeah. you know, that's a, a one day, uh, like, the program is failing, and so the the global uh, leaders decide to try and build a wall around what the What does that room. sound yeah, like? Yeah, what is that, guys? The walls, <laughs> surprise, don't fucking work. <laughs> and so uh, uh, Idris Elba is, like, recruiting the last uh, Jaegers um, to, like, fucking do a Hail Mary, like, let's kick some final ass. Yeah. And it's just, like, the most fun. Um, it's beautiful, also. Like, visually... It is beautiful. Visually yeah. insane. Yeah. Like, yeah. a lot of these... Uh, like, if you take the Transformers movies, where it's it looks like a lot of detail, but, like, then the camera work, you can't really see shit. It's all dark, and it's, like, yeah. little metal shit. This movie is bright and beautiful. The scale of these monsters and creatures fighting each other is insane. There's, like, a good 20-minute scene where they're defending Hong Kong, and it's just, like... Three different monsters, four different, like, robots, and it's, like, non-stop, like, just when you think, like, oh, it's just gonna be, like, whatever, monsters punching each other, then a fucking sword comes out, (laughs) and then a monster has wings, and then a monster's, like, throwing up blue shit everywhere. It is so, so fucking fun, and like I said, the cheese factor in this really reminds me of, like, the Top Gun cheese level, where it's, like... I am not mad at Charlie Hunnam and uh, Mako Mori. Is that her name? Uh, yes. No, wait. Well, Mako Mori is her character. Oh, yeah. That's right. Uh, uh, R- uh, Rinko Kikuchi? Yes. Okay. They are so... Um, uh, this movie, instead of like the garbage, basic, like, we're in love. I, right. They truly are interested in each other as, like, soldiers. Yeah. As, like, interesting human beings who are um, drift compatible. Remember, it's about compatibility. It's a dialogue, not a fight. But I'm not going to dial down my moves. Okay. Then neither will I. Enough! Seen what I need to see. Me too. She's my co-pilot. It's a rare time where you they do not fall in love. They do yeah. not like have any romance garbage. Um, and, and it's great. And, like really shout out to her. Like she's my favorite performance in the movie. Full, yeah. of, uh, full of people. Um, the movie's populated by people I I like. Uh, yeah. Charlie Day is really great in it. Ron Perlman's really great in it. Bern Gorman. Yeah, Bern really, really good in it. Yeah, and uh, Robert uh, Kaczynski. Yeah, uh, oh, like, so hot. Another yeah. sexy villain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and you mentioned Idris uh, and then Charlie Hunnam. But like uh, Rinko Kikuchi is my favorite performance in the movie. My second favorite performance in the movie is actually Mana Shada. And the very brief moments yeah. you see of her as uh, like the same character Makamori as the little girl. That's and the, the most beautiful like I mean outside of like the the, the awesome fun destruction stuff like yeah. this is like the most tender like really the, gets you the, the human scale. Like this is yeah. not I mean, this is essentially, like, an anime come to life yeah. in this, like, badass movie. Um, I will say, also, briefly, my favorite um, segment that we haven't done in a while. She said what? <laughs> um, Idris Elba has a moment with Charlie Hunnam where Hunnam is, like, really mad at him, grabs him and pulls him around. And Idris, like, this looks back up and down, like, shady as shade. And he says... One. Don't you ever touch me again. Two. Don't you ever touch me again. Find the clip, Gavin. I will find, find the clip. <laughs> um, I love this movie. I don't know. It's it, it, The plot is very simple. Um, the It's hokey as fuck. But it is the best time I had watching... I mean, the best time I had watching his movies, for sure. But also, like, 
a lot of summer blockbuster movies, I don't think, stand up to this movie. This movie came out the same year that Iron Man 3 came out. Um, I like Iron Man 3. I like Iron Man 3, too. <laughs> um, this, this, uh, another Transformers movie. Like, this movie came out in a year that a lot of big blockbuster, blockbuster movies came out. Right. And this stands far and away, um, way uh, as distinct as, like, being, you know, more fun, more original. Yeah, I don't know. No, yeah. You're an asshole, Gavin. Yeah. Period. Uh, so my favorite, then, is what I assumed might also be your favorite, would be Pan's Labyrinth. I hate it! Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> I, I just think it's his, you know, I think it's really Guillermo del Toro's Fantasia, sort of. Yeah. like it. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, it's the story of a, a little girl in uh, five years after the Spanish Civil War um, in Franco, uh, Spain. Um, she's going to meet her new stepfather, Captain Vidal, Who's a real fucking asshole, and her the mother worst. and her mother is pregnant and sick, um, and she starts to um, see fairies. Yeah, she starts to see fairies. She gets led into this fantastical world, um, or fawn, the, where she meets the fawn. Where like that's why the movie's named Pan's Labyrinth. But Guillermo del Toro has been very clear about the fact he's that not he's, he's not Pan. Um, the, and the original title is the Fawn's Labyrinth, like the fa- the labyrinth and the fawn. Whatever, yeah, like but they just. In the English translation, they right. made it Pan's Labyrinth because people, they assumed Americans would know Pan right. as opposed to Fawn. Right. Because we're stupid. Um, as you mentioned before, the the film starts, like, he loves a good prologue. Mm-hmm. Starts with a prologue about Princess Moana. Not the same. Not the same. <laughs> um, uh, uh, her father was the king of the underworld and he visits the human world where sunlight binds her and erases her memory. As she becomes immortal and dies, the king believes uh, that eventually her spirit will return to the underworld. So he builds a labyrinth around the world in preparation for her return. So as you can guess what's happening with this young girl. Um, and I, I don't want to get too much into it because I think you really should see the movie. But I, the movie itself is a, is a delight. It's a, it's a feast for your eyes. It's, it's scary. It's scary. Points. It's, I, was, it's, I was tense watching it. Yeah. It's, I, I watched it for the second time in preparation for this. And it still is like... Ah! <laughs> makes you like you know because the the stakes are pretty fucking high you know like, yeah it really makes you believe beyond the fairy tale aspect of it you know this war that's happening and like the the villain is brutal brutal His- I mean I could not believe I saw this film in the theaters when it came out and I could not believe the stuff that yeah uh, he was presenting yeah this and, he, and so like I mentioned he said you know a lot of pro- producers and other people in Hollywood said if you would lessen the violence. This would get a wider audience. Yeah. And he was like, fuck that. <laughs> um, you know, the, the film uses a lot of models uh, instead of like digital backgrounds. It, it's all, like all makeup and design. Um, I want to read a real quick clip um, from um, uh, Daniel Walber's uh, write up of it in his weekly column, The Furniture, for the site, The Film Experience. Uh, he did this back in 2016. Um, for the anniversary of the film. Um, and this is something I didn't even notice while watching it, but I, I think is a really interesting thing. Time and again, Pan's Labyrinth features food as a source of power. Ophelia slays the toad by feeding him stones, removing his toxins from the fig tree, and it may once again bear fruit. Vidal, as a representative of the fascist government, consolidates control over their area by issuing ration cards to its residents. By becoming their only source of food, he takes control. The, param- the Pale Man is the most visceral representation of this consumption. His menu is a juicy one. There are grapes and pom- pomegranates, fruits that burst with red liquid. 
There's a succulent ham with cherries and pineapples, what appears to be bright red caviar and deep red jello. These dishes all suggest the taste of blood, made more dangerous by the threat of devouring should Ophelia eat a single grape. And yeah, like she sure does. Yeah, and like I I just like the the attention to detail, the attention, you know, yeah. like every little bit of Pan's Labyrinth works and it works in concert together. It's like listening to the most amazing symphony yeah. and and like beautiful performances all around yeah. and uh, the, yeah the performance that I love the most is from Mercedes the woman who's the kind of like um, maid I guess yeah. the lead maid and she's um, helping out the resistance and it was heartbreaking watching her kind of like vacillate between these two worlds and uh uh, yeah, there's a lot going into this movie, and there's a lot of people experiencing two worlds, as you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. the the rebels and the yeah, and then obviously Ophelia. Ophelia, and I um, going back to like in this movie specifically, a lot of the production design when you see Ophelia is rounded. Um, uh, when you look at the there's like scenes of all the like magical, mystical, whatever uh, other dimension world. It's all rounded and curving, and nothing is straight. And then, as opposed to uh, the what's the name of the villain? Oh, Vidal. Vidal, Capitan, yeah, yeah, El Capitan. Uh, <laughs> like, it's all just like very straight and perfect, and that yeah. just kind of like uh, intensifies the whole idea of like things that are perfect are villainous and deceitful, yeah. and everything that's like crooked and round is beautiful. Which is which is why like he starts to fall apart when he gets cut. Yeah, and when he gets cut, it's. <laughs> So, like, that scene. Yeah. Um, it's insane. Yeah. Like, it, it's perfect world cracks. And, uh, yeah. yeah. It, it's a really intense, um, but beautiful movie. The, the yeah. soundtrack is beautiful. Like, there's, like, a, a lullaby, pan yeah. lullaby that is, like, pretty... Um, and I just, like, you know, it's, it's, it is it's a fairy tale, but it's, like, an adult fairy tale. It's, like, you know, most of the original fairy tales were very adult. Yeah. The, my favorite version of Snow White, because I'm a creepy dude, is the version of Snow White where the witch visits her three times. The first time, she bounds her in a corset so she can't breathe and then the dwarves come back. The second time she poisons a comb and stabs her with it. Ah! Yeah. And then the third time's the apple. Most people just know the apple. And it's so. funny because I saw an interview with Guillermo talking about how uh, these fairy tales, he's like, I like Little Mermaid, Disney's Little Mermaid fine. Yeah. He's like, but is that the story? No. No. Like the real yeah. story is a lot more brutal and and super gay. Yeah, and he's like, <laughs> like do you know? That. I was gonna say, I don't know. That's, uh, oh yeah, that's super he, gay. He wrote it because he was like in love with another dude, and the dude was like, no, not into that. And so that's why, like, because in the original story of the Little Mermaid, like, rather than she, like, it's not a happy ending. She mm-hmm. tur- like he rejects her, and she turns into sea foam. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so like, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, he's just, he's like he's like I enjoy the Disney films. They're a lot of fun. He's like, but if, if people would tell me, like, if they were going to do a Disney version of Pan's Labyrinth, you know, it would not be Pan's Labyrinth. Right. He's like, so, you know, these, like, kind of Disney-vied versions of these fairy tales, they're fine for what they are, but they are not the story. Yeah. And so it's not the truth. And he's really interested in in the truth of humanity as opposed to just kind of, like, the right. soft edges of these stories. And and also like I I mentioned Spirit of the Beehive before like Spirit of the Beehive's a movie in which a little girl copes with her reality by sort of imagining these things and like obviously Pan's Labyrinth is you're meant to read it like two different ways and it's like are these things actually happening to this little girl yeah. or yes of course they are because she's this fairy princess who's determined to return to yeah. her yeah it was, yeah. Fu- it was fin- I so when the movie ended I was like oh my god like 
what did I just like, was that what happened or yeah. what? Like I was grappling with myself. Um, but in the end I was mostly taken by, uh, like I said, Mercedes and her yeah. journey and how that affected her. Um, and, and these rebel resistance guys who are trying to just like eke out a fucking <laughs> existence. Um, so yeah, I don't want to spoil it by talking too much about the ending. Yeah. But I think that's a very, I think it's, I think Guillermo is very clear on how yeah. you should read this movie. Um, but I think uh, your instinct when watching it will is to think, wait. Yeah. What's. It's, uh, it's a, it's a pretty profound ending. Yeah. Um, and, and this movie was super successful. Yeah. Like, was nominated for, uh, like a bunch of Oscars. It won three Oscars, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, was it nominated for Best Picture or just Best Foreign Language? Best Foreign Language, yeah, not Best Picture. Um, cause we don't do that anymore cause we're dumb. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, was there any other pieces of, you know what? That- so I just watched Devil's Backbone. Yeah. I kind of liked that better than Pan. Interesting. I, I genuinely really like Devil's Backbone, so that's not to take anything away from it, but, uh, I, I think they're two sides of the same coin. Yeah, right. And I yeah. only mentioned that I liked it better because, because Guillermo said that they are this like spiritual, um, you know, I think he says that, Devil's Backbone is the masculine version of a story, and Pan's Labyrinth is the feminine, um, yeah. or that like Devil's Backbone is the older brother to this. And um, and there's some really effective scary moments. I've always said, you know, my favorite scary thing in a movie is the the scare you see coming, mm-hmm. and he's like a master at that. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of just like you'll see the the ghost boy in reflections of things. Yeah. And if you're not paying attention, you don't see it. And if you yeah. are paying attention, oh my god, it's yeah. fucking scary. Yeah. So I guess that brings us to our fast forward. Yeah. So he's attached to everything. Right. And, and everybody's parents and everybody's siblings and everybody's brothers. Like, he's... Uh, currently, he is uh, producing Troll Hunters for Netflix, which is a cartoon series. He's also writing a, a book set in the Troll Hunters universe. Uh, he's attached to three films: um, an adaptation of Slaughterhouse Five, um, uh, uh, Frankenstein, which oh yeah, yeah, which he said he would only like he he really wants to keep it to like as much of the story as he possibly can um i mean with with the universal monsters garbage no 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 i don't think that i think this is a a different thing yeah because bill condon was supposed to be doing bride of frankenstein Mm, Um, that's right oh so maybe this is a dead project um i don't know see this is the thing it's it's tough to find out what he is working on because um he has so many projects yeah he was gonna make a pinocchio movie at one point with jim henson um but uh yeah he when he talking about his Frankenstein, he said his Frankenstein would be fi- a faithful Miltonian tragedy, um, citing Frank Darabont's near-perfect script, which evolved into Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein. Uh, Del Toro said his version, uh, what I'm trying to do is take the myth and do something with it, but combining elements of Frankenstein and Brian and Frankenstein without making it just a classical myth of the monster. The best moments in my mind of Frankenstein of the novel are yet to be filmed. The only guy that has ever nailed for me the emptiness, not the tragic, not the Miltonian dimension of the monster, but the emptiness is Christopher Lee in the Hammer films, where he really looks like something obscenely alive. Boris Karloff has the tragedy element nailed down, but there are so many versions, including the great screenplay by Frank Darabont, that was ultimately not filmed. Hmm. So That'd be interesting to see if that comes... Yeah, I would. I would like to... I would love to see his version of Frankenstein. I think I read an interview where he said, like, it's, it's so hard to, like, for me to say, like, what's happening next just because there's so many, like, things that need to happen. Like, right. he gets 
proposed lots of things, and he has passion projects he wants I, to do. He wanted to do a, a film version of the, like, a new film version of Disney's The Haunted Mansion. That's right. Um, they, were, they were looking for a screenwriter or something. Yeah, he yeah. did a draft, and then they wanted some rewrites. And yeah. So, uh, like we said, he has Shape of Water out right now. Yes. We did not watch it. We did not watch it. We both have access to it, which is the weirdest part. So I'm so sorry. Maybe we'll do a little extra episode where we talk about it. I don't know. But I'm not it, promising anything. It looks amazing, and I'm excited to watch it. Yeah. Um, Doug Jones really starring in this movie yeah. as this water creature. Um, so, and just a, re- just a really fantastic cast all around. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess also I'm excited for to see uh, Guillermo doing uh, another... Like, this seems like very close to his heart. Something that, like, he truly believes in and the whole idea of like loving an outsider if i told you about her the princess without voice what would i say i always loved the idea of a beauty and the beast story where the beast didn't transform he's had this vision for a long time he's wanted to do this story about a woman who falls in love with this extraordinary creature the shape of water is the shape of love Love and water are the most malleable, powerful things in the universe. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely gonna be, it's on the short list for a bunch of awards for you know award season. So excited to see what's uh, gonna happen for him afterwards. And he's been talking about like Justly Dark, and like that, like maybe it might still happen if like right. you know with the DCs now is like okay, fuck our universe. Let's just make like individual things. Right, like, right. Um, so who knows? if that ever will come back to life. Um, and I'm sure he has tons and tons of other, like... Oh, yeah. I mean, he just does. He seems to not ever stop working. Yeah, but I... Love- I mean, this is what he loves, and he's good at it, yeah. you know? So... What I love is that, like, so he has six films that he's directed. Yeah. Um, but his, like, long arms are just in all sorts yeah. of things. But I he love He has a that- finger in every pie. Right. And what I love, though, is that he's... Oh, my God, I would love a finger in every pie. Sorry. <laughs> Gavin? I'm sorry. Bring it back to one. I'm sorry. (laughs) What I love about him is, like, that tells me that he's, like, just so specific. He's, like, he's not going to make just anything. He's going to make something he loves and really put, like, his heart and soul into it. And, um, like I said, be generous with his art. And um, so, yeah, he's been in the game for such a long time. But only having six movies. But these are very six specific movies uh, that he wants to tell. And um, I love that the rest of his energy just goes into, like, helping others. Absolutely. Yeah, he seems like a really amazing guy, and he's incredibly talented. Does that bring us to the end of our episode? I guess that brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, I do want to announce, uh, we know what we're doing for our next episode, but we're going to take a brief hiatus for the holidays. So, yeah. So, it's mid-December, and now, whatever you're celebrating, we're going to celebrate it. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, but we'll be back at the beginning of next year, probably within like the first week or second week of January, and we're going to be talking about our favorites and our least favorites of the year of 2017. Yeah, I'm excited yeah. for that. Uh, but if you want to contact us before then, we're everywhere online. Also, you should like tell us what was your favorite for the year, like yes, like, because I feel like we'll have a lot of time to think about yeah. this. Because we'll let it this stew. This will be hard. I feel we have a whole year to kind of like condense get through. Yeah. I keep track of every movie I see. You do? Yeah. Oh, my God. Google Docs. Um, but, yeah, if you want to contact us online, you can find us on Twitter at, at The Mixed Reviews. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, just type in The Mixed Reviews. If you want to email us, you can email us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com there if you, you want go. to leave us a longer note. There. Oh, bless. That was the 40th take. Right. You, got, you nailed it. <laughs> 
Um, and yeah, and you can find us everywhere um, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio. Where else? Um, Is that some, SoundCloud? Some, some SoundCloud and. Uh, yeah, and if you like our show, you can rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find us, especially if it's a good rating. Mm-hmm. And we actually got a new one on November 15th. Um, uh, it says, Fun and Insightful, and it's by Howl Dan. And it said, I just recently started listening to Gavin and Louie's podcast, and I found out I found it to be a lot of fun. They delve into interesting topics from an analytical standpoint, but provide insight, fun facts, history, and explore the podcast topic thoroughly without beating it to death. I appreciate their ability to weigh pros and cons on topics and that they are also engaging on social media with their listeners. Oh, I'll engage. <laughs> so thank you, Howell Dan. Thank you very much. Thank that's, you. That's really great. Um, so yes, if you want to leave us a nice message like that on iTunes, please do it. Please do it. Yeah, and uh, I guess we'll see you guys in a couple weeks. In 2018. Um, and until then, maybe I'll post that really embarrassing picture of me and Guillermo del Toro. Do it! Oh um, my god, you have to. It's me and my awkward teens, and by that I mean any time right. that's post-13. Me and awkward... <laughs> Lifetime. Active. Yeah, yeah, right, correct. Uh, love you guys. Alright, have a happy new year. Safe holidays, guys, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.